Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today we're joined by Stephen Toop, who is the Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge University, the boss, and we are going to talk about the politics of higher education. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. Joining me along with Stephen are Helen Thompson and Chris Brooke. We're going to start by talking about the most political thing that's happened here for a while, which is the strike that we've just been through. And it's not resolved by any means, but it's been parked for now. It's about pensions. And Stephen, you've been in this job for less than a year. You came here from Canada running big institutions in Canada. So you have something of an outsider's perspective on this too. And this thing kicked off fairly early on in your tenure. It was, it still is about pensions, about the pension scheme that academics were relying on and now felt for a while that they couldn't. But it became very political and it became, I think, to a lot of people's surprise, extremely fraught and contentious. Do you have a sense, looking back with a little bit of hindsight now, why pensions became such a political issue here? Well, I think there, it's wrapped up with a lot of different issues. In part, it's wrapped up with the increased tuition fees that uh, students are now paying in the United Kingdom. Uh, I think a fundamental shift in how we understand the funding of higher education. But I also think it's quite closely related to concerns that many people have been raising over the last few years about how universities are viewed by government particularly, and I think through government in a sense by the wider public. And that is that universities are increasingly seen primarily as economic engines, which they are, but they are not solely that. And students, I think, are increasingly perceived primarily as consumers. And I think when you put all that together, there's just a sense of unease. Stefan Collini, our colleague, has argued that we really don't understand in the wider public the role of universities as we once did. And so I think there's nervousness, there's anxiety, and in fact, even there's anger. And as I said, you've got something of an outsider's perspective on this. You've seen how it works in other places. You also found yourself at the eye of the storm of this too. With no warning, I will say. Interestingly it wasn't in enough, the job it, was not, it wasn't discussed in my coming here, which tells me that this really did blindside a lot of people. In a way, that was going to be my question, which is the things that you describe have been background rumbling conditions of anger for years. And yet this thing blew up relatively out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And it did draw the students in because I think some people listening might think, well, if it was a strike about pensions, what have tuition fees got to do with that? Indeed, don't the tuition fees potentially have to somehow be part of the solution? And, you know, these things are all joined up. Did that take you by surprise that the extent to which an issue which at least potentially could divide academics from their students brought them together? 
Well, it brought some of them together. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the reality is that there are hugely diverse views on all of these issues across the university. And I, I have the great privilege of moving across the university, meeting people. And I know that uh, one could never say that there was one constellation of agreement on anything, uh, frankly, in this whole situation. But having said that, I will say that I think that it is, in fact, this question about the role of universities and who students are that has come to the fore and is the uniting factor. It's certainly true that government often advertises this interest in treating universities as businesses, students as consumers, and so on. That rhetoric comes at us thick and fast. It's also true, though, that a lot of university managers reproduce it. And just the other day, we had the Russell Group tweeting from its Twitter account that if you go to a Russell Group university, you have a salary of £3,000 more than anyone else. And the proximate cause of the crisis wasn't anything that government did. It was Universities UK moving to downgrade staff pensions. So part of the problem certainly is government, but a big part of the problem is the university managers absorbing a lot of this kind of government ideology the fetishization of league tables, all these different ways in which we compete against one another. And that's a big part of the problem. And I think you get it less in Oxford and Cambridge for historic reasons. But it's a massive problem in the wider sector. I agree, actually. I think that there has been an assimilation of this rhetoric within the university sector. I want to, though, go back to my earlier assertion. I think a large part of this comes from driving forces that the government has created with seeming public support over a long period of time, or at least no public reaction. I think it's actually now time to be a public reaction. I would only say on the pension issue itself, we do have to remember that this wasn't actually created by UUK. It was created created by the pension regulator and the trustees declaring that, in fact, the pension was not going to be affordable going forward. And this, of course, happens every three years with evaluation. It's one of the problems with defined benefit pension plans. They have to be reassessed every three years. I was just going to say something that's in the same ballpark in a way, which it seemed to me, and it seemed at the time, not just looking back, that you had kind of two different sets of developments, the structural forces, if you like, that collided into each other. On the one hand, you had what's going on in universities and the way in which you and Chris have talked about and a great deal of discontent about not just government's approach to, a successive government's approach to um, higher education, but just about, okay, what do we actually think universities are for? We don't like the answers that we're hearing in the public sphere. I should say, we're going to come on to that question. And crashing into these changes, I would say, arise out of what happened in 2008 and the monetary and financial world that we've lived in since 2008, that makes it much more difficult than it used to be to sustain defined benefit pension schemes. And we can see, actually, during the course of the strike, I think it was BT, British Telecommunications, there was a deal for restructuring there pension scheme into something that was a hybrid one, part defined benefit, part defined contribution. So this was something that wasn't just happening in the university sector, but it crashed into something that was about the universities and was about things that have happened over a long time over um, universities. And I think that's one of the reasons anyway why things became as fraught as they did. I think it's important to say that the question around defined benefit pension schemes has been troubling the Western world. Mm -hmm. This is not unique to the United Kingdom and it's certainly not unique to the sector. It's actually the Royal Mail that reached an agreement 
agreement. Yeah. And they want to try to uh, use existing legislation, but then there has to be new implementing legislation to move to what's called a collective DC scheme. We won't get into the details, but the idea is that there would be a sharing of risk, which is the problem with a defined contribution scheme if it's pure. It means that all of the risk is borne by individual employees, and I personally find that troubling. We'll move on from pensions in a second, but from where we are now, as you say, it comes back every three years. And if it keeps coming back every three years, it's going to get, we thought the last strike was difficult, it's going to get worse. A lasting solution in this climate? Are you optimistic? There has to be one. This is the third time this has happened. This pension scheme that exists now is not stable. There have already been two reductions of benefits and two increases of payments. This would be the third. And unfortunately, as Helen was indicating, what we see with interest rates, etc., would suggest that this will go on. So I think there just has to be a solution. Otherwise, we're going to get ourselves back into these positions and they will become increasingly bitter. And I don't think that's good for anyone. On that wider question of treating students as consumers, as you say, it's it's become part of the rhetoric of public life in Britain, and it's shared by both parties. I mean, I'm not sure. Politics is pretty volatile at the moment, and the, the Labour Party, a future Labour government, we may be dealing with something different. But certainly, looking back, this is a long-term story. Again, if I could just get a little bit of an outside perspective on this, when you come into the UK context, in the UK, people, I think, are used to thinking, well, we have something of this, but there must be more of it in North America. That's much more surely of a genuine consumer market system. Students are really kind of valuing their higher education in terms of value for money and so on. When you look at the UK version of this, are we right to see it as something that's milder than what's going on in North America, or does it have a different quality? I would say absolutely not. I find it extraordinarily powerful here in a way that I never experienced, certainly in the Canadian context. I, I had never heard in Canada a student referred to as a consumer, ever. Including by a politician. Including by politicians. Uh, that's intriguing to me. Now, I'm not saying that markets have not had an effect. And there's absolutely a pressure, especially when students are paying very high tuition fees in the United States, for value for money arguments to come forward. But they usually come forward from students and parents interestingly, not from government. The other piece that's intriguing to me here is the notion that there has to be a, quote, regulatory authority over universities. The idea that somehow students have to be protected from their university is also rhetoric I have simply never heard before. So where do you think it comes from in UK politics? Because I think we probably don't recognize that internally because you get used to what you have so the Office for Students and so on. What's driving it? Well, I'd love to hear comments from my colleagues. Chris, Alan, uh, first. I've, I've got a theory. I don't know if it explains everything, but I think one of the things that happened was that the last fee regime reform, so the move towards £9,000, was supposed to be, as the government conceived it, the then coalition government, but it would have been implemented in the same way if Labour won the election in 2010, that a few select universities would be charging fees at £9,000. And there was a presumption that the students would behave like consumers in the sense is that they would not be prepared to pay £9,000 for degrees that were less good than, say, ones that come from, let's just say, Russell Group universities. I'm not making a qualitative judgment, just trying to explain what the thinking behind it was. Now, in reality, pretty much every university, bar a couple, ended up charging £9,000. So the fee regime, as it was conceived, was a failure. 
And some sense, I think, then we get the regulatory response of this new office for students mm-hmm. is to try to do the work that actually the market didn't do because students didn't behave in the ways in which the government expected. Now, in part, the students didn't behave in the ways in which government expected because they didn't have a choice to behave in the ways in which government expected because so many universities went straight to £9,000. So the whole thing was a, a policy failure, which, as I would say, had profound domestic political consequences in terms of repoliticizing university fees. We saw that in the last general election. So the whole thing is incoherent, and you, they're not actually going to be able to make what they want to happen, I mean, they being the government, with this regulator, because it, you'd have to start all over again in trying to get this thing to add up. I think that's absolutely right, that the, the difficulty comes from a very half-hearted or even half-arsed attempt at marketization. In addition to the point about everyone raising their fees to the maximum permitted level, I think there's something else, which is that the idea of a market is that failing enterprises will go out of business. And we haven't come close to seeing that tested, whether conservative politicians are really willing to see what are often the major employers in constituencies go bust. And so in this world of an attempt to introduce market discipline that has been incoherent and half-hearted and no one's quite able to see how far the logic of marketization is actually going to extend, you end up in this world with government keen to regulate and keen to have its office for students to keep an eye on everything. I would add that I think that the policy changes were very dramatic and relatively quick. I agree completely. They weren't thought through, or at least the behaviors were not the behaviors that were expected. And I think there is a broader sense of frustration in the population. And frankly, if if I were a parent who had been operating under a certain set of assumptions about how a child's education would be funded, and then all of a sudden I find I'm in a completely different position, and my child either might have a huge debt, or I'm expected to fork over £9,000 somehow that I had not been planning for, and where salaries in the UK are not particularly high... I actually think there's a certain degree of almost a breach of the social contract, if I may be dramatic about it, that this all happens so quickly and without proper planning. And we see that because the scheme that was put in place to actually help with the loans is also, we know, not functioning properly. So the interest rates are extremely high and it doesn't look like the scheme is going to be self-sustaining over time. So you described it, Helen, as a failed policy and I'm adding other elements of failure to that policy. And can I add one more thing to the mix? Because I think also part of the background to this is a sense in British political life that cuts across both parties, certainly Conservative and New Labour. Probably it has more origins in the Thatcher era, which is about professions that sort of regulate themselves and decide their own social value. And that kind of discomfort and anxiety from politicians, partly I think trying to get ahead of what they think might be public opinion about lines of work where it possibly looks a little bit like a clothes shop in deciding where the real value is. I mean, that has deep roots, and it applies to lots of professions. It applies to doctors, it applies to lawyers, it applies to the police in many ways, Mm. and it applies to us too. I think we probably have to be aware of the extent to which, I think from a political perspective, deciding how valuable we are isn't going to cut it. I certainly understand the desire for any government and frankly for the wider society to have input into social value pronouncements. Completely get that. I think what's striking here is the extent to which there's been a kind of 
creeping regulatory framework, starting with REF, then into TEF, and potentially something called KEF. Although that's and seems people who don't know what these things are, just guess. Don't worry, just guess. Just guess. Research, uh, excellence funds, <laughs> teaching excellence funds, knowledge exchange frameworks, all with their own bureaucracies of measurement that, frankly, a lot of the rest of the world looks at somewhat askance. Uh, there's been a lot of critique around the world of the movement of the UK towards these highly bureaucratic frameworks of evaluation. So getting the balance right is really the question. You raise, uh, David, a very fair point about you know self-assessment perhaps not cutting it in the, in the contemporary world. But nor, too, I would have thought, is really detailed regulation with high expenses the right answer. I agree, but I think the only thing I would add is that we have to remember that the reason why there was the fee review, which actually began in the early part of Gordon Brown's premiership, is because of lobbying from universities. Mm. Government was responsive to what the higher echelons of university, the Russell Group, or whatever we're going to call them, wanted, which was higher fees. And that is why they tried to do it, I think, on a bipartisan basis because they didn't actually want to let that issue back into domestic politics again. The Blair government during the second term had got into difficulty with even moving to the £3,000. And to be frank, it nearly fell. I mean, the government came close to collapse. It it, it relied on on Scottish votes on that, even though it didn't apply in Scotland. So they could see that it was a fraught political exercise. But I do think the universities themselves, or at least some universities, have got to take quite a lot of culpability for the move towards this fee regime because they did ask for it. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So how should we value universities then if these two poles aren't going to cut it, as you said, for different reasons, over-regulation and academics who, like all professions, and maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, think that they are very valuable and are offering something that is absolutely, some cases they think, priceless. Where and how do we, in, and let's be frank about this, and we'll talk a bit more about this, in a political climate where education is becoming an increasingly acute question and a divider, social divider, how do we put a value on what we do? Or how would you value it? I'm, I mean, you read a really important letter during the strike, which was published in the Times. Mm-hmm. I think it made a big impact, actually, in which you did completely front up and say, as someone in the eye of the storm, you understand the students' perspective, particularly about the way that what we're all doing has been misvalued. Mm-hmm. I'm so struck by how we're getting ourselves into a mess on this issue because I get the great opportunity to travel around the world. I was just in China and it was absolutely stunning to hear the description of senior Chinese leaders, uh, vice premiers, the minister of education, talking about the absolutely crucial importance to the future of China of investing in all levels of education, but particularly in higher education. And what I think they're understanding is that higher education 
has values that cross a whole range of social benefits. The obvious value is simply in helping to create people who are informed, we hope relatively critical, able to analyze complex issues, and help to design policy, help to understand how the society can move forward. We need people like that in our society. And it's not to say that everyone has to do that, but there has to be a group of people thinking about these things with the capacity to do it. So there's that. There's also, of course, the economic benefit of producing people who go out and become entrepreneurs and build businesses and run large corporations in a market economy. They're crucial to the future success of both the country and its trading partners. And then you also have the personal benefit of education, which is really about expanding one's horizons, expanding one's base of knowledge, expanding your ability to connect with other people because one hopes that you will learn things that help you understand other elements of society and other cultures as well. Now, not everyone gets all of that in equal measure, but over time, if you are producing generation after generation of people with different types of university experiences, and that's important, it's not all one version, then I think you're actually developing a healthier society. And frankly, we've shown that over generations, over hundreds of years. You can't imagine the United Kingdom as the society that it is without all of the investments that were made for hundreds of years in higher education. And now other countries, India, China, are desperately trying to find ways of replicating that success. So I think it's my job partly to play devil's advocate Of course. (laughs) So that historic story, that 100-plus year story, is a story in which this form of education was for relatively few people. And actually, in some periods, vanishingly few people. And so what you describe could be made available through a serious process of selection to a few. You know, the other background condition here that we haven't really discussed is the vast expansion of higher education in Britain in the last 20 years. So moving from 50 years ago, where fewer than 5% of the population went to university to 20% in the 80s, now closer to 40%. Does government have a responsibility for people who are getting none of those things that you describe, but are in large numbers going through the university system? I mean, I'm trying to sort of see that Yes, these are all hugely valuable things. Do some people who maybe at the end of this process leave with debt, maybe a fairly unsatisfactory educational experience and no job? And we have to recognise there are these people, lots of them. What does government do about them? Well, the lots of them is a big question. I actually think that, I mean, the data on this is actually quite hard to read. Certainly for the top universities, the number of people who actually graduate without huge opportunities is small. Of course, there is a range of universities and there will be some with worse outcomes. And of course, government has a fair set of questions to ask about whether people are being left behind. But I think it's a broader set of questions about provision of a range of opportunities for people. I'm not convinced that it is right to say to a prospective student, you must go to university or you will have no opportunities. There are alternatives, shorter courses, uh, college type courses, courses that are dedicated towards more targeted 
outcomes. There are also opportunities that should be provided within apprenticeship schemes. I was just visiting an apprenticeship scheme uh, here in Cambridge a, a couple of weeks ago with incredibly engaged young people who were getting a very good training in something they wanted to do. That should not be devalued. That is something that the society needs. So I think it's a question of creating a range of opportunities rather than trying to imagine that every educational opportunity will look like Oxford or Cambridge. But that's also a story with a long history of Britain failing to provide the kinds of things you've been talking about, that people remember the 1944 Education Act as having the uh, system built around the 11 plus with grammar schools and secondary moderns, but there were, it was also it was supposed to be a tripartite system with technical schools, but the technical schools never did what they were supposed to be doing. Similarly, when the polytechnics were introduced, they were supposed to offer something quite different from universities, and then in the end, in the 1990s, they were all rebadged as universities and considered part of the same sector. So there's a very long history of people saying we need more technical education, we need more apprenticeships, we need a different kind of model of apart from academic schooling and university education. And there's a consistent failure over decades by policymakers to deliver what people have been saying we've needed but for I a very long time. But I think you could time. argue on the polytechnics that that was another failure, that actually that they were doing a much better job for the kinds of people that Stephen's talking about than what happened when polytechnics were folded into universities and universities the kind of courses offered across universities became more and more uniform. And I, I, I can say that I thought that was a very bad policy move. I remember it at the time, and it happened in the United States, it happened in Canada, it was a general trend, except in parts of Europe where they've retained, I think, a stronger... Uh, historical commitment to technical education. But my point is, let's continue to, to have really robust political debate about that rather than trying to regulate universities at the higher end so that they're all trying to accomplish only economic outcomes, which is, I think, where we're headed. Listening to you speak, it strikes me one of the oddities here is I think we all recognise this isn't us overvaluing what we do. British universities are our absolute world leaders and the higher education system in this country has often set the standard. But our politics is really messed up around this. So we've got this sort of weird double effect that we're people really want to know what's happening in the UK and in, with UK universities because they often want to follow. They want to learn how to do what we do. They would love to have universities like ours. But then they end up following our really stupid politics because our politics does seem just talking about it now, like a, a series of mistakes, but also a series of pressures that come through the way we do politics, our system, our, our way, frankly, of electing governments, the way we do these kind of knife-edge decisions and so on. And so the world is following us because they want our kind of universities, but they're getting trapped in our kind of regulatory politics. I would actually say that a lot of people aren't following the UK on right, this. I think they're following back to Chris's early point on the rankings. I think okay. that is right. an area where there has been just unhealthy and but massive assessment movement. frameworks are kind of... Uh, seem to know or, or no. people look at us and think no, not really not worth I, it. I would say most people look at the assessment yeah. frameworks here and think they're unbelievably cumbersome intrusive and that they don't necessarily produce healthy outcomes I'm not saying there's none of this I think Australia's had a little bit of it for example but most other parts of the world have not developed the same kinds of frameworks as in the UK. And I was just talking about this with a group of university presidents in China. I don't think that there's a great desire to, to move in this direction. So we really are just stuck with our own stupid politics. Uh, well, I hope we can overcome some of that uh, if, we, if we work hard. So can we then frame that 
in relation to what's going on in contemporary politics. It's something that we've talked about quite a lot on this podcast. So there's a tendency inevitably to think about, if you work in higher education, how politics is playing out in higher education. But there's also a question of what universities are doing in politics, that is how it's become an issue. The headline figure here is that on the Brexit vote with Trump, and actually in many European contexts too, in the French presidential election, the question of whether or not a voter went to university turns out in many contexts to be the single best indicator of how that person was likely to vote. And this is new, strikingly new in some ways. You can't trace it back over time. You see the beginnings of it in the 80s and the 90s, but it's just come to the fore now. And I think it's a really hard question to know how you're meant to think about that inside a university. I mean, it's not our fault in a sense, but we are really implicated in this, even if you take the Brexit case. Cambridge, classic university town, very prosperous, very Remain, Mm -hmm. surrounded by parts of the east of England, which see the world completely differently. And seems like part of the reason for that is universities. Mm -hmm. So again, you're right at the heart of this. You didn't, I guess that was part of the job description that Brexit was going to happen. Just what's your broad sense of how it, how it should impact on how we think well, you say that it's not our fault, and I think it, that's true at one level. But in some ways, I think universities can actually become disconnected from their local environments in an era where there's so much emphasis around internationalization, more international students, more global contacts. We work with large companies. We work with large civil society organizations. And you can, I think, start to believe that the experience within that bubble is, in fact, a more general experience. Cambridge is a great example, unfortunately, because you only have to go 20 miles away and you're in a completely different economic situation. Ten ten miles away. Even ten. So one of the things I know that uh, colleagues here have been working on for a while is to try to figure out a broader East of England strategy for Cambridge that isn't just about, uh, you know, we'll be fine in the uh, city centre, but actually thinking about how it might be possible working with other institutions. Again, we don't do this alone. It's got to be with Anglia Ruskin University. It's got to be with the University of East Anglia. It's got to be with the school systems. We have a number of major initiatives now to try to improve educational outcomes in the whole of East Anglia. We have initiatives that are trying to build up economic opportunities by linking people who are working here with outfits that are in places like Peterborough and places like Norwich rather than all being in Cambridge. So I think that's one thing that we have to do. I think the other is frankly just not being smug and not looking at the rest of the world as if it's it's deformed. The deplorables, as Hillary Clinton famously said, we have to really deeply try to understand why people are so frustrated. And part of that is economic inequality. Part of it is a sense that politics isn't working for uh, people who are seeing their children have worse opportunities than I'd expected. There are lots of explanations, but I, I think it's really important that we don't simply say, we're just superior, we have a better understanding of this, and those people have to be brought along. I think if we take that view, we are going to uh, make ourselves almost irrelevant in the politics of the country. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think one of the things that's striking over Brexit is that you can look at it, which is a way that it's often framed in terms of, okay, people who are more educated were more likely to vote Remain. Though if you actually look at the data, the Ashcroft data is quite different on that point than the the YouGov data. I mean, it's the same 
conclusion, but not of the same magnitude. But I think one of the dangers for universities is, is that they don't acknowledge that they also have interests. And the interests of people who work in university were served generally by staying in the European Union. And they also have prejudices. I mean, I think it's both. Whether it's interests or prejudices, there's a tendency to present it as some kind of like abstract commitment to an ideal, or maybe based on superior knowledge. Not a good for individuals. It may be, but nobody can ignore the fact that many universities in this country are structurally dependent on large numbers of EU students. So. In the same way in which if you look at people who work in small businesses that don't engage in international trade, their interests are simply not the same. And so we have to acknowledge that we have interests as well as opinions. And I think that is something that universities have been not good at. And individual members of universities, because individual professors also have interests in connecting with the EU through research grants, through their teams, etc. So it's not just institutional interest, it's individual. And in Cambridge, there's another part of this too which is that we're at the cutting edge of the tech revolution and those public goods that you were saying universities deliver that include we need people to lead corporations we need people to take senior roles in, in driving the economy and so on but the economy that's being driven locally and internationally is one that you know it's a very complicated question but at least potentially is also the driver of some of these inequalities and again that's a really difficult one to know how to square because no one wants to sort of put a break on any of this but we have to be aware of the ways in which even things like technical expertise are implicated in the most contentious political questions of our time we are part of a really dramatic set of economic and social changes and therefore the politics around them is fraught. This is going to be I think over the next number of years a very uncomfortable set of transitions and people will be finding that they can't make the transitions from one sort of job category to another. You know here's another funny thing though that's happening just as we know there needs to be more and more investment in trying to help people retool to move from one economic sector to another that's the moment when it's actually harder to fund part-time education the open university is under huge threat you'd think that the policy would be trying to drive in exactly the opposite direction so that this much vaunted lifelong learning was more accessible to people but we're making it consistently harder so So something's going wrong in the analysis of how we manage these moments of really profound change. I don't want to draw you into a debate about China, particularly when you've just come back from there. But one anxiety of this is often that democratic politics finds it increasingly hard to take the long view on these questions in Europe as well as here and in the United States. And that you described listening to China's educational and political leaders recognize the value and invest in it. Is there a tension here that fundamentally does come from the challenge of matching long-term social goals against the pressures of short-term electoral cycles? Uh, yes, of course it does, but it <laughs> wouldn't it, a leading it, it wouldn't but it wouldn't encourage me to give up on democracy. No. I think we have to fight on exactly that ground. And this has been true in the corporate world for a long time. You know, the quarterly results driving really foolish behavior sometimes. And there is a bit of a reaction against that, but frankly, not enough. And I think we see the same thing in our political life. Here's, though, a 
place where it seems to me that actually leadership matters because if you simply defer to that as a political leader and you don't try to lead the debate, then I think you're not playing the role that we actually expect good politicians to play. And I think this is not a party political comment. I think this has been going on now for a few generations. There just hasn't been really strong leadership, which ultimately people, I think, will at least listen to. I was very glad you mentioned the Open University because the crisis swirling around the Open University is a very striking example of how messed up the politics are, that this is one of the great achievements of the 1960s Labour government, some would say the great achievement. More people have been through the Open University than any other institution. If we're looking at the metrics, it consistently gets extraordinarily positive responses from people talking about how satisfied they are with it. Everything you're saying about how lifelong learning, re-equipping people, it plays an absolutely central role. And yet, as an unintended byproduct of changes in the funding of higher education, it's in an absolute mess. And the vice-chancellor there was recently forced out, a vice-chancellor who was very keen to make an awful lot of people redundant, and who knows how that drama is going to play out. But I think that's a remarkable example of just how we've managed in this country to mess things up um, with one institution that absolutely should be flourishing. I just have one thought in terms of the democratic politics question as you were talking and Stephen was answering, and that is you could say that democratic politics in this country has done its work here in terms of putting the policy failures into play. You know, we have an electoral politics that has, over the last three elections, actually had mess-ups to do with higher education, particularly the 2010 election, obviously, and the 2017 election, play a part. But also, I think I'd say, in terms of the rise of Corbynism within the Labour Party, the, the structural change of so many more people going to university but having not as many economic opportunities as they might have hoped for, I think is probably central to the sociological explanation, to use that term, of Corbynism. So our politicians and our leaders might not have solutions to them, but we're not in a position to bury our head in the sand about the consequences of the predicaments that we all face here. And Stephen, you're going to be dealing with these over the next few years. I mean, we are looking, possibly there won't be another general election for a while. But for the reasons that Helen says, this is now almost hardwired into the likely future of British politics, including electoral outcomes. Whether we like it or not, we are right at the heart of the story now. And it's a we. It's not just uh, vice chancellors and uh, and other university that's why leaders. That's we. <laughs> uh, it's uh, and I actually think that's an important point because I I would be hopeful that within universities we can start to find a clearer narrative uh, collectively about what it is that we're actually trying to achieve. Why do universities matter for a wide swath of the British public? Can we help to offer up policies that governments might actually find uh, assailable and attractive? I think we all collectively have to now get on the bandwagon and start working on this and not simply stepping back and moaning about how awful it is that people don't get us as well as they should. If I can finish by sort of coming back to where we started. So the, the strike that we had recently I think threw into relief for a lot of people who the we is here. And a lot of people were surprised by different kinds of mm. coalitions that emerged, including between students and academics. A lot of people thought that that wouldn't happen. And then divisions between the academic community too. And one thing that we haven't mentioned is the other great divide in our politics is generational. Um, there is a 
big gap. And there's a report published this week by the Resolution Foundation, which is looking at precisely this question, that if the generational gap is the big divider now, how are we going to make transfers across the generations? How are we going to provide support across the generations? And of course, we're, we're sort of caught in that too. Mm-hmm. We educate on the whole, because we haven't managed to get lifelong learning going. Not just young, but actually very young people, 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds, and most of us are not so young. So that's also part of this we here. Actually, we're sort of at the forefront of that bit of politics too, which is bridging the generation gap. And that's not going to be easy either. I think, though, it does tell us that we, as Helen's point is right, we are just going to continue to be in the eye of the storm in higher education. I think, frankly, education as a whole, because a lot of this also, which we haven't got to, begins with failures in the K-12, to to use the North American terminology, sector. And I think we, therefore, really do have to start thinking from a generational standpoint, what all of this means in politics. I don't think we can, again, just assume that because we're connected to young people in a way that a lot of others aren't, that we are actually listening and understanding. I think we have to work harder at that. I completely take that point in that it's one of the ways in which we might be blinkered is that we think we're more connected than we are. I mean, it is one of the dangers of working in in education is that you can console yourself because you're surrounded by young people that um, you know what their interests are, never mind what they're thinking. And I think we're discovering increasingly, and the rise of Corbynism is part of this. I mean, this podcast has been going partly because we keep being surprised and we study politics for a living. We don't know. Increasingly, we don't know. And that's part of why we're at the eye of this storm. Universities, the, the knowledge centres of mm-hmm. public life, they don't, we don't know. No, I think we know less than we often think we do. Thanks to Helen, Chris and Stephen. And Stephen, I should say, told me that he's not our boss. It's great to have Chris Brook back. He's going to be joining us again next week. Chris Bickerton will be with us the week after. So the panel will be back together. And we're going to be trying to get back into everything from the local to the international. If you missed it, we put out an extra episode this week, which was to let you know about my new book, How Democracy Ends, which, as it happens, is out today. We'll tweet a special offer for Talking Politics listeners. My name's David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. I think we have to say the boss, because people might know what vice-chancellor means. I know you're not, I know you don't think I was, you're I was, I was about to say, I'm certainly not the boss. <laughs> I think you're allowed to say that in a, in a moment. <laughs> uh, no, no one wants to sort of put a break on any of this, but we have to be aware of the ways in which even things like technical expertise are implicated in the most contentious political questions of our time. That was, I suppose there should have been a question at the end of that. Uh, well, I, I, I think it's... Rather than a speech. <laughs> I think it's true. 
Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.